This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is John 1, 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is God's word. On, uh, on Monday, I threw out my back. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wish I could say it was doing something heroic. <laughs> I was trying to put on a sock. <laughs> I can't stand long enough for this, so uh, I have to sit. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, you know, even though this, this text is not explicitly about the birth of, of Jesus, uh, John 1, the chapter of John 1, is all about uh, John telling us about the meaning of Jesus coming into the world. And obviously, that's what Christmas is about. Um, God breaks into our world. And so this, this is an important text, I think, for us to wrestle with. Additionally, it, it talks about a, a topic that I think is important for us as Christians and for those who are not um, a part of the body of Christ. Uh, it addresses the, the topic of self-identity. Um, if you get Christmas right, uh, if you get the meaning of Jesus coming into the world right, it radically shapes your self-identity. And this story is going to talk about that. It's going to talk about a self-identity of true greatness. 
a self-identity of true greatness. So here's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at true greatness in your view of yourself, true greatness in your view of Jesus, and how we can participate in true greatness. Okay, true greatness in your view of yourself, true greatness in your view of Jesus, and how we can participate in true greatness. First, true greatness in your view of yourself. Now, John was a popular preacher. There were lots of people who flocked to him, to listen to him, but the religious leaders of the day despised him. Why was that? There were numerous reasons for that. One of the reasons is that John the Baptist came up outside the right channels, as it were. He was not tutored, mentored by an accredited rabbi. Uh, they didn't like the way he dressed. He, his, his attire was, was too rough compared to the religious leaders of the day who wore these formal robes and gowns. And John's got this camel hair thing going on. His diet wasn't mainstream. And rather than focusing his ministry around the temple, he was out in the wilderness. So there are numerous reasons why the religious leaders of the day despised John. Now, John talked a lot about a Messiah, the impending arrival of the Messiah. Now, at this time, there was a lot of anticipation within the Jewish community over the arrival of a Messiah. But the conception was that th this Messiah would be a figure, a Jewish leader, who would rally the people, who would rally the nation against the rule of Rome. And there was also this notion that someone would come as an Elijah figure. Malachi 4 talks about this. It says that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah, and this forerunner would be like unto Elijah. So at this time, there was a question circulating around Israel concerning John the Baptist. He was at the center of this. Who was he? Is he the Messiah, or does he think he's the Messiah? Or does he think of himself as Elijah the prophet? After all, he's wearing rough clothes, he's outside in the wilderness, maybe he's cultivating an Elijah image. So the religious leaders of the day send out an interrogation team to question him. And they ask a series of questions. Are you the Messiah? John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No. I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18, there was a prediction that there would be a prophet like unto Moses who would come. And John the Baptist answers that question. He says, no, I'm not the prophet. This is where things get interesting. Because we have to compare what John says about himself with what Jesus says about John. We have to compare what John says about himself with what Jesus says about John. When we do that, we realize that John is getting himself wrong. John is getting himself wrong. Let me show it to you. Matthew 17. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Even clearer, Matthew 11, this is after John the Baptist was beheaded, someone came to Jesus and asked him what he thought of John. And this was Jesus' answer. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what, you, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
Truly I tell you, among those born of women, that's a lot of people, by the way, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see that? Jesus had a far higher view of John than John did. Jesus had a far higher view of John the Baptist than John himself did. Jesus believed John was a person of momentous historic significance. John did not. John is saying, no, I'm not anybody special. I'm not, I'm not anybody of significance. Who was right? Well, of course Jesus was right. John was wrong. John could not see his own greatness. John could not see his own greatness. Why? Well, we say today, low self-esteem. That's got to be what it is, right? Low self-esteem. Here's a guy who doesn't know his own talents. He doesn't know his own abilities. He doesn't know his own greatness. It's got to be low self-esteem. Is it low self-esteem? Look, there are two reasons, I think. I think there are two reasons a person who's really great at something might not know they're that great. Two reasons. Two reasons they may not know they're as great as they are. One is they're so focused on themselves, which, su which such self-absorbed scrutiny and intensity that they're picking every little thing that's wrong with them out and they're just not seeing the whole. In other words, one reason a person of greatness may not know their greatness is that they're focused on themselves. The other reason a person of greatness may not know their greatness is that they're not looking at themselves at all. They're looking away from themselves to something else. They're not thinking through, what's my legacy gonna be? What place will I hold in history? They're not thinking about that because they're thinking about something else outside themselves. They're looking to something else. They're beguiled with someone else. Does John get himself right? No, he does not understand himself. He does not understand who he was. John's view of himself is actually showing us true greatness and it has nothing to do with self-esteem. That becomes clear as we look at the second point. True greatness in your view of Jesus. These first two points have to be held together. They don't make sense without the other. True greatness in your view of Jesus. So John's view of Jesus is fleshed out in a number of different ways in this story. But one thing is very clear. He's vague about himself, but he's not vague at all about Jesus. One of the things that, that shows us John's view of Jesus is revealed in this quotation he makes from Isaiah 40. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the word for Lord is the word Yahweh. That's the covenant name. John is saying Jesus, this Jesus, is the Yahweh of Isaiah 40. He's the Lord of Isaiah 40. In this, con in this historic cultural context, this would have been an audacious claim to make. Jesus from Nazareth, this, this, this carpenter's son, this carpenter, this, this son of Joseph, is the Yahweh of Isaiah 40? You gotta be kidding me. John the Baptist is not at all vague about who Jesus is. And then we have this bit about untying sandals. What is that about? Untying sandals was demeaning work. It was reserved for the lowest of the low with dirt roads and no sanitation companies. The streets were incredibly filthy. Uh, people walked around on them all day without shoes. They had sandals with two, three straps, maybe. At the end of the day, your, your, your feet are caked with dirt and dung. And so there were rules about this. Who unties the sandals? There were rules about this. 
tying sandals was a dirty job. John says, I'm not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. It would have made more sense for John to say, I am only worthy to untie Jesus' sandals because that's the bottom of the totem pole. That's the only thing I'm worthy to do. Bottom of the social ladder. Anyone who undies sandals is at the bottom of the social ladder. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. How much lower can you go? What's John doing? With rhetorical flair, John is showing us Jesus isn't like the rulers and the kings of the world. He's not like Caesar. He is so much higher than Caesar. He's so much greater than Caesar. He's so much higher and greater than any earthly king or emperor. So John has this incredibly high view of Jesus and incredibly low view of himself. Now let's, let's use that to think about self-identity. Let's use that. Let's use those two things. Incredibly high view of Jesus, incredibly low view of himself to think about self-identity. Where do people get their self-identity today? Where do you get, where, where do you get your self-assessment? How do you decide whether you're a good or bad person? If you leave God out of the equation, if you leave God out of it, there are only two places to go. You can look at what other, th- other people think about you or you can look at what you think about yourself. That's it. Only two places to go. If you leave God out of it, only two places to go. What other people think of you or what you think of yourself. You can look at other people's standards for you, other people's expectations, what your family, your culture, your peer group thinks about you. Or you can look at yourself and you can say what matters most is what I believe and what my standards are and what what I want to do in life. Now, most of us in this room put our self-identity together um, with both of these. But those in more traditional cultures, and those of you who come from from traditional cultures know, your self-image is determined by whether or not you have fulfilled the social role given to you by your family and your community. In those situations, it's what your family and your community thinks of you. That's where your self-identity comes from. Those of us in more Western cultures, we put our stock in what we think about ourselves. What matters are my standards, what I've decided to do, and, and whether I've achieved that. So if you leave God out of the equation, your, your self-identity is derived from what other people, people think of you or what you think. Now look at John the Baptist. He lo- he isn't looking at either of those places. He's not looking at either of those places. And that's the reason he's the kind of person he is. That's the reason he possesses the kind of character he possesses. Think about this guy for a minute. John, John is mistaken about his greatness. He's not aware of that. Somebody's going to say that's low self-esteem. And you might conclude that someone of low self-esteem, what would they be like? Maybe shy. You know, they wouldn't have a whole lot of confidence. They wouldn't try new things. They wouldn't be bold. They wouldn't be innovative. They wouldn't do risky things. But is that what we see out of John the Baptist? There's actually quite a bit written about him. And when you read about John the Baptist, you realize this guy was incredibly bold. Incredibly bold. Someone would, some people would say he's quite brash, in fact. He's clearly loaded with all kinds of courage. It's, it's here in this, in this passage. The group of interrogators are getting frustrated with him. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. They're getting frustrated. They say, well, tell us who you are. Who are you? Give us an answer. And then in verse 25, they ask this, then why do you baptize? They're really interested in this. 
And John's talk about baptism is actually a revealer, an indicator of the kind of guy he is. This point about baptism is important to understand the kind of guy that he is. Baptism, listen, baptism is not something that started with Jesus and the apostles. Didn't start then. There was a history of baptism within Judaism. But the only people who were baptized were Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. Now the word Gentile, you need to know this for our studies together. In the Bible, it's a catch-all word for those who weren't Jews. Okay, So most of us, not all of us, are Gentiles. It included people of other races, other religions, other nationalities. And often within the Jewish community, Gentiles were looked down upon because of that. Gentiles were unclean. And so when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they were often baptized as a kind of ceremonial washing signifying their Gentile uncleanness had been dealt with. But John the Baptist is demanding that everyone be baptized, including Jews. That's radical. That's in your face. Do you know what he's saying to them? He's saying we're all unclean. Every race, every religion, every nationality, equally unclean before God. That's radical. And all of this from a guy who doesn't know his own greatness? All this from a guy who's got low self-esteem? No. No, that's not it. Uh, the greatest story ever told. Anybody ever see that one? Greatest story ever told, 1965. Uh, a lot of big names in that one. Uh, it's a story, uh, it's a typical Hollywood epic, and it's the story of Jesus' life. And one of the most interesting characters in the movie is played by Charlton Heston. He plays John the Baptist. And uh, even though he's guilty of some overacting, and, and some of his lines are not, a lot of his lines are not in the Bible, what I find very interesting about it is I, I think they get John the Baptist right. The nature, the character of John the Baptist, I think they get it right. It's pretty accurate. In the movie, John the Baptist is always calling people to repent. Repent, repent, repent. And um, uh, they bring him before Herod. And uh, of course, he turns to Herod and says, repent. And Herod kind of blows him off, says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Herod's wife comes in, although she's not really his wife. Uh, she's Herod's brother's wife that Herod had stolen and she comes in, she says something to Herod, and John the Baptist sees her, and he says, repent, that's adultery. And Herod says, you're going to die for that. And John the Baptist says, you're going to hell for that. And Herod says, I can kill you. And John the Baptist says, then you'll just free me. And that's him. That's John. So here's the question. How can someone who is that unaware of his own greatness, who's that truly blind to his own assets, how can someone this humble with that kind of understanding of himself also be this powerful? How can someone like that be this bold, be this confident, be this fearless? How does that work? Here's the answer. When they say, who are you? John does give them an answer. He answers them. He says, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. That's it. I'm a voice. That's all I am. 
And this is actually brilliant. And I think explains how he can be so humble and bold at the same time. His, ter- his interrogator is saying, who, are, who do you think you are? John is saying, I'm just a voice. In myself, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But the one I serve is the greatest in the world. In myself, I'm nothing. I'm just a voice. But I'm talking about the greatest one in the world. There's a compendium of Shakespeare's plays that include brief introductions written by the editors. Now, for the record, I don't make it a habit of reading Shakespeare. Okay? I would rather watch the NFL on Sunday afternoon than read Shakespeare. But I happen to come across this. And uh, in this compendium of Shakespeare's plays, the editors included uh, brief but very rich introductions to each play. And these introductions are astonishingly eloquent. In the introduction to, uh, to Henry V, the editors say, Shakespeare is giving you the ideal man. Now look, he's idealized in the play. Henry V was not like this in real life. But, but this is how he's, in, he's the ideal man in the play. And this is what one of the editors says in the introduction to set up the play. Henry exhibits the utmost greatness which the active nature can attain. He can be terrible to traitors, but his sternness is without a touch of personal revenge. In the midst of danger, he can feel so free from petty heart-eating cares as to enjoy a piece of honest soldierly mirth. A devotion to great objects outside himself fills him with the force of glorious enthusiasm. Hence his humility or modesty, he feels that the strength he wields comes not from any clever disposition of his own prudence, but streams into him and through him from his people, his cause, and his God. A devotion to great objects outside himself fills him with the force of glorious enthusiasm. That's John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist. He's not bold or humble. He's bold and humble at the same time. There's no ego here. Ego makes you arrogant, and it's ego that makes you afraid. It's ego that makes you arrogant, and it's also ego that makes you afraid. But what if the ego's taken away? What if you're just a voice? And what if you're just a voice who's filled with glorious joy and enthusiasm because of the great objects you're looking at outside yourself? Is this true greatness something we can participate in? Can this be true of us? Yes. Let's look at it. How can we participate in this true greatness? It's very simple. It's there in the text. You have to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A devotion to great objects outside himself fills him with the force of glorious enthusiasm. A devotion to the great object, capital G, capital O, outside himself fills him with glorious enthusiasm. In verse 29, John the Baptist is calling people to behold the Lamb of God even as he beholds the Lamb of God. Now the NIV has has rendered this as look, but the force of the imperative is stronger than that. It It means to fixate, to gaze, to take in. Around here, we talk about being Jesus-obsessed. That's what John's calling the people to. 
John is calling for Jesus' obsession. If you're going to be just a voice, humble and confident at the same time, you have to behold the Lamb. Now, John's little statement here, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is just pregnant with meaning. The word Lamb, the phrase, the, the context, probably would have hearkened back to Passover when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. Remember that? God sends plague after plague upon the Egyptian people in an attempt to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go free. None of those work. So God announces there's going to be one final climactic plague, the plague of the firstborn. But this plague is going to be different. It's different. Unlike the other plagues, which affected only the Egyptians, this one is going to hit Israel too. Unless they heeded God's word to them. God was showing them something. He's showing them they have something in common with the Egyptians, the people have, who have been uh, tyrannically oppressing them. They have something in common with the Gentile Egyptians. Namely, they have a sin problem too. And sin is always met with divine justice. So they, God tells the people of Israel they're to take a lamb, sacrifice it, put its blood around the door frames of their homes, and that night as the angel of death swept through the land, wiping out the firstborn in each home, he spared the firstborn in the homes covered by the blood of the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just wonder, have you heeded God's word? Have you responded to God's call to trust in the blood of the lamb? Do you behold the lamb of God? who takes away the sin of the world. This, this could very well be a, likely to, a, a reference to uh, what took place annually on the Day of Atonement. There was a sacrifice of a lamb, but there was also a goat involved. In Leviticus, the high priest would lay hands on the goat, confessing the sins of the nation, figuratively placing on that goat the sins of the nation. The goat was led outside the camp into the wilderness and released. And God was communicating to them Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you have beheld the Lamb of God, if you have taken shelter under, behind the blood of the Lamb, your sins aren't attached to you anymore. They don't define you anymore. This is what Jesus has done. Do you behold him? It's no wonder John is declaring with such force for the people to behold the Lamb of God. So John had a particular way of seeing himself. He had a particular way of seeing Jesus Christ. And as a result, it formed him into an immeasurably bold and fearless person. He had a particular way of seeing himself. He had a particular way of seeing Jesus. And that formed him into a bold and fearless person. The way he looked at himself is what you see in verse 27. I am unworthy. The way he looks at Christ is, behold the Lamb of God. His view of himself is soft. His view of Jesus is loud. He doesn't call people to look at him, nor does he call himself to look at himself. He doesn't call people to look at his unworthiness. He doesn't look at his unworthiness. He just knows it's true. But he says to them, I want you to look at my Lord. Behold the Lamb of God. You really get the sense, after you read through John's biography, you get the sense that for every second John spent looking at himself, he spent an hour looking at Jesus. You want to see your self-identity radically shaped, radically changed? 
Practice that. For every second you take to look at yourself, spend an hour looking at Jesus. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Why do you go to the Grand Canyon? To behold a great splendor. Yeah. A devotion to great objects outside himself fills him with the force of glorious enthusiasm. See, Christmas is a call to behold the Lamb of God. John could have said that upon his arrival. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christmas isn't just for Christmas. Christmas is not just for Christmas. It's for every day of every year, every day that God gives you life and breath. So we're gonna be coming to the table. And as we do, we come to the table to behold a great splendor. Yes? We come to the table to behold a great splendor. We devote ourselves to great objects outside ourselves. We devote ourselves to the great object, capital G, capital O, outside ourselves. We come to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, though you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one. We're told that all things were created by you, for you, through you. Though you are all of this, you came from heaven's throne to pay the debt we owed. Because of your life, your death, and resurrection, our sins no longer define us. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. And so Jesus, for every second we spend looking at ourselves, I pray that you would position us in front of our mind's eye to spend an hour beholding you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, you are the supreme splendor. You are the supreme splendor. So we behold you now as we come to this table with gratitude, with joy and praise. We pray all these things. Amen.